You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast. Hello and welcome to the Times Higher Education podcast. I'm Sarah Custer, your host and the editor of THE Campus. Since fake news became a buzzword during Donald Trump's 2016 presidential campaign, the prevalence of disinformation and misinformation in our lives has only grown and become more sophisticated. And it's a real problem. 45% of adults in the UK, surveyed by the website JournalLink, said they come across fake news every single day. In a Pew Research Center study from 2020, 70% of Americans said the spread of false information online was a major threat to the country. In the discussion about what we can do to tackle the problem of misinformation, education is often a common solution that comes up. We need to teach better critical thinking in schools, we say. We need to show people how to fact check. But what does that actually look like in the day-to-day running of a university? And for the average higher education instructor not specialized in fields like media, politics, or the social sciences? And is there more that institutions could be doing to inform public policy and technology companies to help get ahead of the disinformation wave? For today's episode, I spoke with two academics who are dedicated to studying disinformation and how it impacts our politics, our behavior, and our very democracy. First is Phil Napoli, the Senior Associate Dean for Faculty and Research at the Sanford School of Public Policy and the Director of the DeWitt Wallace Center for Media and Democracy at Duke University. His latest book is titled Social Media and the Public Interest, Media Regulation in the Disinformation Age. Phil and I spoke about how universities can help local journalism flourish in their local communities, and he offers some good tips for how researchers can get their work into the hands of the right people so that it can make a real impact. You are a researcher in public policy around media. You also have a specialism in local journalism. As we're talking about uh, misinformation today and what universities can do to try to tackle it or combat it or what role they're going to play in that, start off just by telling us a little bit about what your background is as a researcher and academic. Sure, sure. So, yeah, so I'm I'm a media researcher in a public policy school, which in the U.S. is sort of a rare thing. And what, what's, what's great is at the school, we have something called the DeWitt Wallace Center for Media and Democracy. And that's the center that I direct. And what the center really allows is for us to not just do academic research, but also to engage with various types of, of stakeholders um, you know, that are involved or, uh, with issues related to misinformation. So, for example, we have one colleague who um, is a fact-checking expert and has worked with the platforms, Google, Facebook, Twitter, um, to uh, sort of help them integrate fact-checking systems into, into, into their services, uh, you know, to varying uh, degrees of effectiveness. Uh, we're working on, um, you know, establishing a media literacy curriculum with public schools in the area. Uh, and we actually produce our own local uh, news site, which actually, you know, if, you know, from our local news research, we know that when the local news source in a community goes away, uh, it creates this vacuum uh, that in, in the U.S. is increasingly being filled by sources that often don't adhere to traditional journalistic norms. They might be more inclined to distribute misinformation. So we try to 
you know, sort of fill the gap with our own uh, local news source. So a variety of different ways. And, and of course, trying to educate our students in our program to be, um, you know, savvy consumers of news and information and, uh, and, and training them in, in, in sort of modes of journalism that hopefully will lead them down the proper path and not let them become misinformation purveyors themselves. Mm. With your local news source, how, how is that news produced? Do you have a team of reporters? Are you working with journalists? It's, it's a, so it's a student-run uh, news outlet. So traditionally, universities have the school paper, right? And the school paper will cover the school. Uh, and we, you know, so we have that, that's a whole separate entity, but what we have is what we, it's, it's a, it's a local news uh, site that just covers the city of Durham, North Carolina. Uh, and what we do, which is great is we actually, uh, work in partnership with the local news weekly, um, which is as many of those local news weeklies are in sort of tough shape financially. And we provide them content. In addition to what we publish online, we provide them content. We, you know, they'll they'll often run our stories. So we almost sort of help to subsidize um, the local news weekly in the in the city. Uh, but it's it's you know it's it's a student uh, primarily a student run uh, operation, which is again you know not you know. I wouldn't put that as a as a you know uh, perfect substitute for having a traditional local newspaper in a community, certainly. But it, it provides a good opportunity for students as well, and myself as a journalist, that that journalistic experience, getting some of that on the job training is is vital to someone starting their journalism career. Yeah. Um, I want to talk a little bit more about local journalism. You mentioned quite a few things there about kind of what your center is doing to really engage with this topic. But I want to talk first about local journalism. Um, and you mentioned that that's often where misinformation starts to spread whenever there is perhaps a lack of local journalism in an area. And we know about news deserts. Um, where and we're hearing about local papers that are being shut down. I think there are like multiple a week that are shutting down in the United States. Tell us a little bit about what role you think universities who exist in those news deserts, what what more they can be doing? That's a really good question. And in fact, when, when we did our own research, uh, we analyzed 100 randomly sampled communities around the country, uh, oh. trying to get a sense of um, you know, how healthy their local news ecosystems were and actually gathered a lot of variables about these communities uh, to try to get a sense of what were sort of the predictors. And actually, one of the most significant predictors of the health of a local news ecosystem, which we measured in terms of, you know, number of outlets and, you know, how much local and original content was being produced was the presence of a university. So um, and we, you know, one one theory could have been that, well, news, you know, news universities are newsworthy and they generate a lot of coverage. But really, when we dug down, what we find is, you know, a, a university in a community will, will often be a very substantive contributor in terms of sometimes local TV stations, often one or more radio stations, often one or more uh, publications. So they, you know, they. They really can be a, um, you know, again, when we looked at 100 communities, that was one of our statistically significant variables in the positive direction, the presence of a, of a university. So they, they do seem to matter in that way. And is it more of kind of what you guys are doing, teaming up with student journalists to work with the local paper? Is, is that something, is there anything more that universities could be doing to, to foster that? I mean, it doesn't even need to be a local paper. You mentioned radio mm -hmm. stations and maybe some public television stations. 
Sure. I'm, and I'm thinking of an example from my uh, from New Jersey, um, where at a university, um, they've established a local news collaborative, basically, and they sort of serve as a hub and an organizer um, for various nonprofit news sites all, all around the state. Uh, and so it was, you know, it began at, at the university sort of trying to figure out a way, you know, what's a, what's a role that we could play in helping um, local journalism flourish uh, across the state. So that's, that's another example of, 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 of a way um, yeah. that a university can contribute. Uh, so you mentioned news literacy and digital literacy and improving that among the students within your program. But let's talk about that on a, on a university-wide scale. And that's often something when we talk about how universities can fight misinformation, critical thinking, building digital literacy, building news literacy. Those are often tools that come up whenever we're talking about this stuff. I'm wondering if this kind of remains contained in the areas that you work in around like media or journalism, or if this is something that could and should spread across all disciplines. That's a great question. And, and I, you know, I, I'm, I'm thinking back to, I mean, this is 10 plus years ago uh, as we were watching how technology is changing um, journalism. And, and the phrase that we kept hearing was everyone's a journalist. Now everyone's a journalist, right? right? And at the, it was at that same time that journalism schools at the same time, but the economics of journalism were sort of, you know, collapsing uh, and journalism programs were thinking, well, you know, what's our purpose here then? And I always thought, well, if, if everyone's a journalist now, then everyone in, at a university should be getting some training in journalism. That if, it, if, it, if we're going to treat this as sort of part and parcel of citizenship, right? Mm -hmm. uh, and if the traditional institutions of journalism are declining and we're truly going to say, well, it's up to sort of community members to perform that function, um, then I was arguing at the time, well, then whether you're a history major or a physics major or whatever, you're, you know, um, that, you know, sort of like we expect everyone who comes through the university to take some science, maybe we should expect everyone who comes through to take some journalism. Mm. I've always been a, a you know a, a really prof uh, you know vigorous advocate of that. If 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 we're if we're serious about um, you know this notion of um, of this sort of democratization of uh, of journalism and and of you know various forms of community journalism truly being uh, a viable path forward. Just to play a, a little bit of devil's advocate here, um, when we're talking about misinformation and, and that it often comes from polarization within politics. Um, it often also is quite rooted in a sense of belonging and people kind of wanting to find tribes and maybe some general isolation across Western societies that people are feeling. Is it actually even possible for universities to really tackle it through teaching everyone journalism or having more of a, a civic minded approach to your news diet? Or does it need to go a bit deeper into looking about looking into the behaviors and why people are even kind of falling prey to, to misinformation to begin with? That's a really good question. And it, you know, and it also highlights something that we have found, for example, when we were doing um, research on sort of who does sort of move into the community journalism space. You know, the, 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 the pattern, unfortunately, does tend to be those folks with an agenda, Right. That those are the folks that first and foremost, you know, take up the mantle. Uh, and that and that's not ideal um, that it is the folks sort of at the extremes of the of the polarization spectrum. Um, you know, that's one of the bottom lines is, you know, it's sort of journalism as a career path and as a as a viable business has diminished. 
what remains, uh, you know, in terms of who it appeals to is uh, are those folks who are really first and foremost concerned with political influence. Right. And, and so that is, is certainly uh, concerning. Um, but, yeah, it's you know, but what you're pointing to is, is the need for it for this sort of broader education, I think, around around citizenship. Right. And, and how, you know, and, and sort of recalibrating people's understanding of what, you know, citizenship within a nation entails and requires and expects. Um, and, you know, and that, and that probably needs to happen well before college, that it needs to have, you know, uh, we're doing some research now with a, with a foundation that's really asking this core question about, you know, how does governance need to change going forward uh, in this digital age? And a lot of the interviews uh, we're seeing people talk about that, which is we need to sort of, you know, recalibrate people around shared narratives and and uh, an understanding of of respect and, and appreciation for different worldviews and all of you know going to that question of yeah, if we if we can't depolarize right to some extent, no, no, none of the other solutions we're talking about really can work. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And it's almost kind of like teaching, teaching people. And I'm thinking mostly about the United States here, because uh, that's where we're both from. But it's, it's teaching people how to how to be in a democracy. We've been given this incredible gift, but not really the user's manual for how to take care of it and, and make sure that it thrives. Right. And, and people have over the past, you know, people have been subject to now and have absorbed some, um, you know, some very different philosophies, right, on what being a citizen in this democracy looks like. Uh, and, I, and I tend to think of this as generational. I think, you know, we hate to say it, but there might be, you know, certain generations that we have to write off as lost causes and then start fresh with the next one. <laughs> okay. Is that horribly cynical? <laughs> when you were saying generational, I was thinking you might, you might even be going back to kind of the, the Second World War generation who actually lived through what it's like to to have a real threat of perhaps not having democracy and having that taken away from you. And maybe they understand it, have a deeper understanding and appreciation for it than, than other generations might. But, you know, and, and there's some you know political scientists who've said, you know, we should have seen something similar, that sort of community develop around a shared threat like COVID. And just the fact that it had the exact opposite effect is in many ways, you know, emblematic of, of where we are. Uh, that that we should never we should never have expected COVID to sort of exacerbate political division. It should have had the exact opposite effect. And the fact that that that's what we witnessed is is no greater indicator of of how dire our situation is right now. So let's take it back to um, the public policy question, which is your wheelhouse. Um, tell me a little bit about how universities perhaps have been involved in the public policy solutions around misinformation um, and tell me kind of what, what the spectrum of that is. I'm thinking ad campaign regulations on television or um, social media regulations. Give us an idea of, of where universities are asking that and, and how far you think they can take it. Sure, sure. And, and, and universities, you know, in terms of how they poli- you know, engage with policy, the hope is always that we will conduct the research that will inform policy deliberations. And so we have something even at, at, at Duke called Policy Bridge. Uh, and because it, that's often the, the biggest challenge is getting the relevant research in the hands of the relevant decision makers, right? So um, there's a lot that a lot of infrastructure that universities will invest to, uh, to make that happen. But I've all, often found too that, uh, you know, 
you have to be very proactive as a researcher. And I find that it's not just getting the work into the hands of policymakers. It's getting it into the hands of policy advocates, nonprofits, getting it into the hands of foundations um, that, you know, because we as individual, uh, as, as researchers, we, we're, we're not, we're never, we're never great advocates. It's not what we were trained in. It's not what sort of led us down the path that we uh, ended up choosing. And so it's so important to have those partnerships and those allies so that you always know that there is a conduit for your work where you realize, you know, oftentimes I found in working with advocates that they'll identify a finding in, in my research that you know, I didn't realize had particular policy implications. So they, they have a different lens, which is, so it's always important that it, that there be that kind of uh, collaboration. Um, now, uh, but yeah, in terms of, of particular issues right now, right, um, um, we have some folks, for example, that have been doing a lot of research very uh, recently uh, on, on data brokers and have been able to um, testify before Congress on, on, on the behavioral practices of these data brokers whose work allows and contributes to uh, some of the you know, really extreme kind of behavioral targeting that can happen uh, in the online advertising space where we're starting to recognize, and we've seen this, right? Some of this work, um, not only by academics, but by journalists as well, um, you know, led to, uh, I can't remember which agency now did the inquiry into Facebook's advertising practices. And that Facebook at one point was allowing advertisers to discriminate on the basis of race. Uh, and so we've seen a process of steady sort of pulling back and, and scaling back the kind of user uh, characteristics that can be employed uh, in, in targeted advertising on, on social media. Google has, has, has done the same voluntarily. Uh, so that's, so that's one example. Um, you know, the, the frustrating thing about the U S is that you know, there's been relatively little compared to other countries, compared to England, you know, for example, um, you know, we, the, the first amendment tradition is just so strong that a lot of this is treated as, as off limits. I know, for example, a lot of my work that is propose some sort of some government interventions in the in the social media space that might be akin to how uh, to the model that we have in the broadcasting context. Um, very hard to get uh, policymakers here to take that seriously, but policymakers abroad have uh, and, and some foundations here have, have sort of taken it seriously. So it can be a very long process where something you know, an idea that might seem a little nutty at one moment in time, a few years later, as things get worse, doesn't seem as nutty anymore. <laughs> um, so, yeah, it's, and, and needless to say, the process moves uh, very slow here in, in the U.S. It's interesting that you say that because the First Amendment, for all of its its glory, is is can also be a massive hindrance to this. And there was um, I read recently about the disinformation board that I think Department of Homeland, Homeland Security was trying to set up back in July. I think they tried to do it, and lots of First Amendment advocates and campaigners said, "Look, this isn't right. The the government shouldn't be policing what's good and what's bad uh, online in terms of what's misinformation and what sh should be protected by the First Amendment." And that was coming from both sides of the argument. Any idea of, of, of how we could perhaps get beyond that? Because, I mean, even the government has identified that misinformation is, is a massive threat, as real as international terrorism. So they, they are taking it seriously, but it just seems like nobody has quite the right answer or perhaps everyone's listening to, to different sources of truth and just making the, the issue even worse. 
Right. And that, and that's a frustrating thing in terms of, of, of who we are comfortable empowering. Right. Um, we have plenty of reason to be concerned about sort of empowering government to make decisions about what is and what is not misinformation. Um, you know, from a First Amendment standpoint, all the power should be residing in the platforms. Right. That these they have their First Amendment rights. Now, of course, they've, you know, done plenty to sort of shake our confidence in them as you know, and, and what, you know, they lack the motivation, uh, certainly, to to really be uh, aggressive and effective in this front, and and that uh, and we've seen that plenty. Um, you know, you know that leaves sort of this. You know, and, and, and I personally am, am intrigued by sort of creating, you know, something like the Facebook Oversight Board, but sort of blown up in a you know in a more in a more expansive scale. Can we imagine sort of what I always call sort of government mandated? self-regulation where some sort of independent body gets created and is, and is, is invested with some legitimate authority, um, you know, as some sort of compromised position. Um, you know, there's all sorts of, of thorny issues that arise there. They are sort of the process of, of, of who serves on it. It can get, become, of course, highly politicized. Um, so that that's a possibility. But then, of course, the default is, you know, um, what we were talking about before, which is you know, doing a better job of empowering us as individuals to uh, to be able to police this space and navigate it effectively. Um, you know, one of the issues that often arises here in terms of the guiding framework in the U.S. is this idea, this faith that we have. You know, the First Amendment has always put this incredible faith in this idea of counter speech, right? That the the best solution to false speech is more speech. Um, we are, you know, I would like to be on record as saying, you know, that's you know. That's always been a somewhat naive notion, and the way the environment has changed has only made that a more naive notion. That that's you know we can't sit back and 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 put our faith in in counter speech anymore um, for well for a whole host of reasons. Is this where, for example, journalists try to give a, a balanced report of something and they end up elevating conspiracy theorists or unscientifically proven theories just to provide that counter speech? Is that what you're talking about? I'm, you know, I'm actually, you know, I think that's a whole another important issue. I'm, I'm talking about when something is is demonstrably false, right? Like we, you know, that instead of action being taken against it, we work to provide the correct information. The problem is, as you know, as we know, and where people get their news and information, um, it's a it's a real leap of faith to assume that that correct information will necessarily ever reach them. Right. Uh, that's that's the challenge. Uh, and that the bottom line is sort of producing falsity is so much easier and cheaper and circulates so much faster. We know that that sort of battling falsity with sort of by trying to circulate truth and disseminate truth as effectively is unfortunately uh, you know a bit of a losing battle. Hmm. So for educators who will be listening to this. What tips would you give them right across the spectrum if they're teaching chemistry 101 to if they're teaching postdocs and the history of the Roman Empire? What sort of advice would you give them if they want to kind of do their bit to help sure. prepare their students to fight misinformation? What tips would you give them? I would say and it's so interesting to think about it across all these different types of disciplines, because this is an issue that's finding its way, as we know, into health, into science. Every, you know, so it, it, so it, it truly um, is, is that wide ranging? And I would say a couple of things off the top of my head. Um, one is everybody needs to be well trained in evaluating sources of information. Um, um, 
we've never, and that's never been more work than it is now. Um, that is, you know, it used to, we used to have mechanisms that would make it fairly obvious to us what was and what was not a reliable source of news and information. Um, a lot of those mechanisms have broken down. There's, you know, um, tr you know, traditional gatekeepers don't operate in the way that they they once did or have the effectiveness that they once did. So, so that would be one, right? And so, if you're, you know, if you're a physicist, you know, um, we, in academia, we have a long tradition of of this, and just you know, in our in our journals, right? And we know how to identify really high quality journals versus low quality journals. And this, but so this needs to, you know, this needs to be part and parcel of how anyone is trained in any discipline. Uh, and related to that, I would say, is this issue of uh, especially with younger generations, um, retraining people to be active news and information consumers rather than passive. And by that, what I mean is one of, you know, one of the key things, one of the key characteristics that our new news and information ecosystem has created or sort of is, is, is sort of a passive news consumer. The phrase that I often remind people about, and it emerged in focus group research a decade and a half ago, was young people's mindset that if the news is important, it will find me. Um, that the idea that our social network will do the work of putting in front of us that which is important, that which is accurate, et cetera. And nothing has been more damaging than the fact that we've had a, generations now of passive media consumers, of news consumers, who what ends up in their news feed is what is newsworthy to them. Uh, and, you know, the days of going and accessing news sources directly, that that, that, that pattern of news consumption has diminished relative to the one of being having your news feed, you know, fed to you, right? The word is right there, feed. You are just being fed. Yes, you've made some initial decisions about what's going to be in that feed, but increasingly that feed is filled with things you didn't pick. It's filled with things that the algorithm thinks you'll want to see because some of the people in your own network consumed it. And so there's all sorts of inferences that are being made about what is important to you. Uh, you need to take charge again and take that power back uh, in terms of, of, of how you approach, how you inform yourself. This episode of the Times Higher Education podcast is sponsored by the Wall Street Journal. Truth, accuracy, fairness, curiosity. These are the pillars of journalism and of higher education. The Wall Street Journal prides itself on being a trusted and essential resource for professors and university lecturers. Visit wsj.com slash times higher education to learn more about integrating WSJ into your classes. We can all agree that turning students from passive to active news consumers will go a long ways helping them identify fake news. But who might be more prone to misinformation in the first place? And doesn't a university education equip you with those all-powerful, critical thinking skills anyway? Our next guest researches the individual and contextual factors that contribute to our likelihood to believe and share misinformation. Simke Andy is a lecturer in quantitative political science at the University of Exeter. She pointed out that research shows that education level isn't always an indication of whether someone is vulnerable to misinformation, meaning 
that universities must take an active role in teaching their students how to identify fake information and what to do about it. Luckily, Simge's got a few ideas of how to do that. So, Simge, thank you so much for joining us today. Um, You have worked for the Reuters Institute of Journalism. You are now a lecturer in political science at the University of Exeter, and your research focuses on misinformation, but you have a special interest in why people consume it. Can you start off just telling us a bit about what your work is and what you're researching? Um, Well, you've done uh, most of the work, (laughs) Um, but... Basically, yes, uh, I'm interested in why people are, uh, first of all, attracted to um, consuming these uh, unreliable pieces of information. Um, And I'm also interested in what makes them believe in what they read or see or watch. And then what makes them, um, what leads them to the decision to share it uh, with their networks on whatever platform they are uh, they're at in that moment. Um, And then second aspect uh, of my uh, research is uh, more about um, using different types of behavioral interventions or nudges um, to help reduce uh, these uh, types of um, what I usually call bad behaviors. Um, So consuming false information, believing in false information or sharing false information with uh, with your network on social media. Um, and in my research, I use uh, a multidisciplinary um, approach um, using different types of methods and theories from um, communications, from behavioral science and uh, political science. Um, I think that pretty much sums it up. <laughs> yeah, excellent. Can you give us a um, maybe a quick rundown of just kind of the, the basics of why people do consume this and why they do decide to go on and share it? Um, Of course. Um, So as far as we can see from the existing research, there are um, individualistic factors and also contextual factors. So um, I mostly focus on the individualistic factors. So I will start with that. Um, First of all, we have different types of people who who actively engage with uh, false and misleading information online. One of them is like the intentional uh, sharers or intentional users who um, actually enjoy <laughs> or get money or get paid for uh, manipulating others on social media. And some of some of these people are, uh, if they don't get paid, they're just simply bored with their lives and they want to troll others for fun on social media. And we also have the unintentional. <laughs> Sorry, is that is that when misinformation kind of merges into disinformation? Exactly. Okay. Exactly. Okay. Yes. Um, if like if you have um, if you have an actor behind those people who um, actively uh, share these types of information online, uh, it might be a state, it might be um, a company who's just like making money out of this. Then uh, that goes into the borders of uh, disinformation, basically. Um, and then we have the unintentional sharers, which is uh, more about uh, our subject, misinformation. And um, this is when individuals uh, don't intend to uh, misinform themselves or others, but they actually um, just fall into the trap uh, somehow. It might be due to because they think that uh, that information that they see is really interesting. 
um, and they share it with others, with their audience, basically, um, to get likes, to get to to inform others. It might just be to uh, just me, just be uh, due to altruistic reasons. Mm. Um, so there are like different types of individualistic factors that affect uh, people's decision to um, share information. With belief, we have more um, on the research on, uh, for instance, a lack of analytical skills. Uh, um, those with lower analytical skills might be more likely to uh, believe and share false information. Um, we also have um, previous research showing us that, for instance, age might be a factor um, in believing and sharing um, with older individuals uh, more likely to pass on uh, false information and being less selective and cautious about the quality of information online. And uh, another factor is digital literacy. Um, if uh, you are new to social media, it's very natural for you to think that maybe it operates like uh, traditional media where information is sort of gatekept and um, there is like some sort of editorial um, filter that uh, delivers you only the good quality, high quality information. Um, so there are like these individualistic factors. We also have contextual factors. For instance, um, we see that during times when emotions are high, we are um, more open to engaging with information. Um, for instance, you can think of election nights, you can think of uh, disasters, um, hurricanes, earthquakes, uh, whatever you can think of. Think about the pandemic or the beginning of the pandemic when uh, we were all very anxious about what was going on in the world and um, we were just like passing on information without really um, thinking too much about it, uh, if that makes sense. Uh, so, yeah, there are, I, I think to sum up, we have um, both the uh, individualistic factors and the contextual factors and they both affect our decision to uh, believe and share false information online. Have you observed anything in terms of um, university education or level of education contributing to people's maybe reluctance to share misinformation or being less um, less prone to consuming it? Um, I think with university students, um, of course, this is uh, limited with my experience, which is at two uh, UK universities, so two universities in uh, in a developed country. Um, but these students, as far as I could observe, they're quite actually savvy when it comes to spotting unreliable information. Um, unlike unlike my generation um, or my uh, my parents' generation, for instance, who learned how to be online um, quite late in the life in their lives. Um, university students these days, uh, generally speaking, they're born into a very online, a very tech intense world. And they know how to navigate it actually much better than um, me and the older generations. I also observe this uh, in my daily life, for instance, my younger brother is much better at anything on social media related to me and my, uh, my mom. Um, and, and then the second thing I would say um, that stands out um, probably is that university students these days, they rely on different types of um, platforms than um, what I would, I was doing uh, when they were, when I was their age, basically. Um, for instance, they're more into uh, video-based um, or image-based uh, platforms like TikTok and um, Instagram, 
um, Snapchat. Um, whereas um, older people um, like me, uh, I, I get most of my uh, social media diet from Twitter. Um, my mom is really, uh, I'm just like giving real life examples, but like older people are more into Facebook, for instance. Um, so there's also that. So when you're thinking about um, addressing the, these types of misinformation problems, um, we also need to think about the um, habits of different demographic groups and what kind of uh, platforms they're into. So for instance, if you're designing an intervention to address a misinformation problem among the youth, then I would not focus on uh, designing interventions or um, the content that is shared on Facebook. I would rather focus on TikTok or YouTube or um, Instagram. So it sounds like what you're saying is it, it might not necessarily depend on an individual's education level as much as it depends on their age and maybe how used they are to engaging with different technology platforms. Yes, I think also there is research um, that sort of shows that education is not the most important uh, factor when it comes to um, understanding who is the most vulnerable to uh, misinformation. Um, and um, it really depends on, um, of course, education in the sense that just the traditional education that we receive, but education in digital um, platforms, education in being in online, being safe, in online platforms is of course uh, another matter and I think that is quite important uh, but yes I think it's more about the platforms they use and what kind of content people get exposed to in different platforms. So you've talked a little bit about digital literacy and and I know one of your focuses of your research is is behavior and nudging behavior to combat bad behavior, as you called it. Um, what do you think a, a university-led intervention might look like if they were trying to help their students become more analytical online and, and combat misinformation? Um, yes, that's a good question. Um, so I think there are a few things, of course, um, they can do. I mean, universities can do, and uh, one of them is um, just make use of what's out there already available um, and make uh, sure that their students and also staff um, are actually aware of them so that they are actually, they, they're gaining smarter skills to spot unreliable information and what to do when, they, when they're um, facing uh, a piece of information that, that doesn't feel that right, but they also don't know what to do about it, uh, whether to believe it, whether to um, send it over to, to someone to check it. So I think there are already really great resources available out there, like there are a bunch of fact-checking uh, platforms that are just like doing this work for um, everyone. Um, so I think one uh, sort of uh, intervention that the universities can do is just like uh, have a raise raise awareness cam raising awareness com campaign um, of uh, making people aware of these resources. So, making sure that students are um, equipped with the skills to fact check. You know, just be aware of these um, available tools like fact checking or. Um, even just realizing that platforms, social media platforms, have their own um, labels and prompts that are um, aiming to educate people in this sense. So that could be one that is really, um, I think, easy to, um, easy to implement. 
I know that you've done some work around um, elections, uh, especially Turkish elections. Um, and this is uh, can be a bit of a flashpoint for young people, especially when we're talking about democratic elections. I'm wondering if there are any lessons that you've learned from when you have been studying how Turkish elections are covered in Turkish media, how specific candidates are spoken about online. If there are any lessons that could be learned there that could be applied perhaps in other countries. Um, yeah, of course. I mean, Turkey is, uh, is a tricky case, honestly, uh, because uh, it's, um, it's a country experiencing um, really harsh democratic backsliding. Um, we still have elections, but they're sort of um, basically uh, not the most um, fair, if that makes sense. I mean, th- we still have competitive elections, but but they're um, leaning towards protecting or promoting the um, the regime rather than the opponents. And um, that said, I think we there are some some um, lessons to be learned from uh, from countries like Turkey. Uh, one thing that we observe uh, in terms of misinformation and especially misinformation during elections uh, in Turkey is that um, it's uh, it's a bit worse than uh, what you observe in democracies. Um, for instance, what we have in Turkey is a media environment that is uh, mainly controlled by the government, um, which means that um, the opponents of the regime, the, the candidates who are from uh, the opposition parties, don't get much uh, airtime or uh, much um, um, coverage uh, in newspapers or even in online media. It's kind of tricky. Uh, what you have is actually the government um, being uh, promoted in most uh, media uh, outlets. And um, the opponents don't have much of a chance to be visible to the, to the uh, electorate. Um, and then, of course, you also have the problem of misinformation um, and disinformation in that case, uh, because there is already like um, organically... Um, growing uh, false information out there on social media, but then uh, you don't have a free media that can correct that. And added to that, you have uh, government-sponsored um, uh, disinformation coming into the equation. So what you have is a compounded misinformation problem and um, no um, automatic correction mechanisms uh, because there's no free media. Um, think about it in the sense that, um, for instance, the Brexit campaign, um, there was a lot of uh, false information circulating, uh, both offline and online. But you had reliable uh, news sources. You had the BBC, you had other um, mainstream reliable news sources who actually uh, uh, who can actually go out and say, no, this is not uh, fully correct. Uh, this is a, this this campaign includes false information, etc. You don't have that mechanism, the correction mechanism, in countries like Turkey. And unfortunately, this is a trend that uh, we see in other countries and other very um, largely populated and big uh, countries in uh, in the global south. For instance, India is uh, becoming more and more like that the, the, with the uh, media environment and the government attempts to control the media. Uh, there, there is another. Uh, there is a similar case in Brazil. So I think there are lessons to take from there um, in terms of countries that are experiencing democratic backsliding, but also 
um, to think about the differences uh, between um, countries like Turkey and countries like the UK, where you have an automatic um, media mechanism, a free media that can correct others uh, when it's most needed. And a big, perhaps, victim of that democratic backsliding that you were talking about is also academic freedom. Of course. Do you think... Do you think that universities are doing enough to be active players in, for example, the the Brexit campaign that you mentioned to take it to the UK context? Is there more that you think universities could have done in that example to perhaps perhaps fight that misinformation? Or is it something that's just so huge that no amount of truth or fact checking can really combat that misinformation online? Um, I think it's um, I'm kind of optimistic about it. I think there will always there there will always be uh, false information out there, and it will always be weaponized to a certain degree, or uh, people will always fall into um, even if it's uh, not intended. Uh, there will always be like misinformation out there with people believing in that. Um, but I think um, both universities and platforms and um, policymakers can do uh, maybe a bit more. Um, and one of the things that they can do more is collaboration. Um, I think um, academics are already um, there. There's some sort of uh, to, to, to a certain degree, there is a there's collaborations going on between um, academics uh, in some countries and social media platforms, fact checkers um, and to a certain degree, policymakers. But I think um, especially when we're addressing um, designing interventions or designing solutions to this problem, um, I think that social media platforms can be a bit more open. And um, as universities, we can be more open to, or as academics, we can be more open to collaborating with social media platforms and other actors in the field. I know this is not as easy as um, I'm now articulating, but um, I think that is the one thing that we can work on, just improving that sort of working togetherness, coming up with ideas together so that the solutions that we design are um, better addressing the problem. Because in academia, we work in our university offices, we design research, we go to our academic conferences. Um, and I mean, there, there are not that many opportunities for us to influence the uh, policymaking at platform level. And similarly for social media platforms, they work in their bubbles. They they are not that transparent. They we don't know how they design their um, interventions, how they design their um, policies. Like there's not much um, interaction going on in that sense. So we're doing our thing. They're doing their thing, and then you have policymakers uh, designing how to regulate uh, online information, how to address misinformation. So we're all like sort of disconnected, I think, from each other. And I think that is the one thing that we really need to uh, we really need to work on. Great. Um, I, I, we've just talked about greater collaboration in this ecosystem of policymakers, social media companies and academics. But there also there's also this whole other teaching mission that universities have. I wonder if you have maybe two or three things that you think universities as a whole could be doing, not just to get their academics out there collaborating more with policymakers and, and tech companies, but perhaps their own research that they're focusing on or, or how they are imparting those digital literacy lessons to their students. 
Um, yes, definitely. So I think um, one thing that we need to work on is um, this. First of all, I think one thing that is quite easy to do um, with some extra funding is um, if we could design uh, digital literacy classes or uh, developing smart skills, um, online smart skills among our local communities, for instance, um, among uh, school kids, among um, retirement houses. Um, so like the people who need the, the most to protect themselves against uh, false and unreliable information. Um, then another thing is, um, I guess, academic research could translate more into informing public policy um, on how to um, how to address this problem better and um, especially in terms of um, the kind of role that social media plays in a democracy. Really good, really good and I think a lot of people listening to that would would definitely agree with you in terms of especially that collaboration point and the the community outreach element of taking it beyond kind of the four walls of your university classrooms and really helping um, educate universities, local communities on how they can identify misinformation. Well, Simgay, thank you so much for your time. I really appreciate it. Uh, thank you so much for having me. That's it for this episode of the Times Higher Education Podcast. Thank you to Phil and Simgay for sharing their research with us and to the Wall Street Journal for their support. Over on THE campus, we've pulled together a collection of resources from your academic peers and university staff around the world, offering advice on issues like improving public understanding of evidence, how to foster respectful debate among students, and how to teach them to identify bias when they're on social media. You can find all of that on timeshighereducation.com forward slash campus. We'll see you next time. You're listening to a Times Higher Education podcast.